This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Uh, a road rage incident in Mississauga was caught on a dash cam video posted uh, to YouTube. The incident is from Monday. Saw a man cutting off uh, the, the driver who was, I guess, taking the video uh, at an exit. Uh, the man exited his vehicle, agitated, wanted to confront the driver. The incident comes after a road rep- after a report that cases of road rage in the GTHA are on the rise. Uh, we just took a peek at this video. Uh, basically, this video is a camera at the back of somebody's car. I'm amazed at how many people have these. Do you have a dash cam? If you have a dash cam, let me know why. And maybe it's for this reason. But, you know, I mean, I don't get into that, that many encounters on the highway that I think I would need a dash cam, one at the front of the back. I mean, I, I guess it's technology. If it's there, you might as well use it. But I think that's the first thing that surprises me is 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 how many people have dash cams mounted in their car. Uh, this one out the back sees uh, the driver uh, obviously following uh, the person with the dash cam, uh, gets out of the car, uh, starts to approach the vehicle, and then, of course, the person drives away. The person continues walking out, you know, after the vehicle as they attempt to turn the corner and, of course, never uh, makes any contact with the person with the dash cam uh, whatsoever. Uh, we have no idea what really transpired before that. Uh, all we have is this footage of uh, the man getting out of the car. Um, no matter what had happened prior to that, no matter who was in the right or the wrong, uh, this guy's the idiot because now he's on film and up on social media. Uh, let's bring in uh, uh, Angelo DiCicco. Uh He's a general manager of Young Drivers of Canada. Get his take on all of this. Uh, Angelo, uh, I don't know if you've seen the video or not, but are you surprised by this? I have seen the video. I am unfortunately not surprised, and many instructors throughout the year have something like that happen to them while they're actually training a novice driver, and it, it, it's, it is concerning. So, so even when you've got a, a driving school car on, on the yep. street with the markings on it saying a student yep. driver, you still give people uh, with the road yep. rage? People have actually got out of their vehicle, gone up to the novice driver and rammed on the window and said, you need to get going when, like, making a right turn on a red Mm. and you're waiting for pedestrians or something that they can't see. So it is disconcerting, and we actually have to talk about road rage in our classrooms because it is much more prevalent than when we got our licenses. So what is this, Angelo? Is this uh, congestion or bad manners? All of those. And what happens is um, we're creating way more cars and way more drivers, but we're not creating way more roads and ways to work to get there quicker. And so some good stats. I'm on my way to Washington in a couple of weeks for a naturalistic study, huge study on uh, traffic uh, behavior and crashes. One thing to think about is that if you're visibly angry or sad or crying, something like that, you're 9.8 times more likely to be involved in a crash. However, if you just extend that a little further and it goes into the category of aggressive uh, driving or uh, to road rage, you're 11.1 times. That's that's a lot more. And some people are forgetting that it's a common public roadway. We all pay taxes. That's why the road is paved. And we have to share and share alike. Didn't you learn that in kindergarten? So what do you teach in classes for new drivers about road rage? So the hardest part is keeping perspective as a new driver. Because you definitely the reason you're in a car is because I want to get to work. But at the end of the day, I have to realize I want to get home safely, and so does everyone else. So staying in the adult state of mind, realizing that we're all fighting for little bits of space, and you may feel like you're getting further ahead by weaving in and out. The reality is you can't go faster than the flow of traffic. We all know that, the guy who passes you 10 times, and then you see him at the next stoplight. So it's keeping perspective that we're all going to get there relatively at the same time it just comes down to reducing your level of risk now if you're holding someone up or they're honking at you get the heck out of the way make let them go get them ahead of you you don't want to be making eye contact in the rear view mirror because that sets some people off so to a novice driver 
if you feel you're in the wrong or you're holding things up, make a right and then a right and get behind the person. And making contact, eye contact in the rearview mirror can lead to altercations. It happened this year. Uh, do you think people realize the danger of doing this? Like even watching this video of the guy getting out of the car. I mean, and then, and, and then as the car drives away, he's, dumb, continu- right? he's continuing to but walk down the middle of this busy, busy intersection. He could get hit. We have police officers and tow truck drivers getting hit at the side of the road, and they've got flashing lights. We've got people rear-ending school buses, and they're, like, yellow. So you getting out of your car to try to communicate to another road user, it's, it's, it's dumb. What that shows, though, is a loss of temper has brought upon a loss of judgment. Hmm. This person might be rather reasonable individual. Maybe something set him off. He was cut off. Uh, he... Uh, felt he was being made to go slower than he wanted to and he snapped get out of a car to that's crazy what about cameras in cars um you know it, it, yeah. it, it just amazes me the amount of people that have them uh and you know uh when I'm looking at this video, obviously realizing that the dash cam is out the back of the car, not the exactly. front of the car, which That's you know, more, which more I, and more. So, right? what's, the, what's the reasoning? What's the reasoning behind this? Because some people in this litigious society, where people are trying not to be held accountable, say for being rear-ended, because even if you're not legally at fault, there will almost always be some insurance consequences. Um, to your policy. Maybe you're forgiven the first time. Even if you're being rear-ended, that claim is going to go through your policy. So people are looking at having some proof that I had nothing to do with it, or they've seen too many of these scenarios and they're hoping that um, uh, that lack of anonymity will stop someone from doing something so silly as getting out of a car and approaching you. But there are more and more um, prevalent now and they're cheaper and cheaper and you know what that's a sign of uh, a sign of the times uh it would could would that help with insurance would that get you a discount of some sort there are some insurance companies looking at things called telematics which take into account how quickly you break and how often you swerve those type of things and that's actually the study i'm going to see released in washington called the Sharp 2 study. So it, it looked at 3,500 drivers over um, something like 50, um, 50 million kilometers of driving, and it showed what people were doing seconds before the crash. And if you're visibly upset, you're 9.8 times more likely to be involved in a crash. If, if you're aggressive, assertive, or road rage, you're 11.1 times. So what's going to happen is either through video cameras or these types of sensors, there will be probably, hopefully, a positive feedback to the insurance company that your premiums will be safer, will be lower, because statistically you're going to be safer. If you're the person who isn't breaking hard and making someone behind get angry, even though they are following too close, you're less likely to be involved in a crash. But that's all the same things Young Drivers of Canada has been teaching for 40 years, is that you go with the flow. You don't create the flow. And you keep extra space for you to screw up, make a mistake and fix it, or extra space for the other guy who made a mistake. At the end of the day, we all want to just get home leaving extra space so someone can make a lane change in front of you, that's a good thing. That's your good deed for the day. Hmm. You know, shouldn't be feeling, oh, that was my space. You took it, and now I'm going to be a tenth of a second later. Well, you know, we talk so much, uh, Angelo, about distracted driving. Being angry would be distracting, wouldn't it? Very, very much so. And so distraction, what we're starting to find out, what we used to blame on other things, it's actually 50% of the road users right now are distracted if you're in the car listening. So, and that what I mean by that is taking away your eyes from the roadway up front for longer than two seconds. It's okay to visually glance around. Some types of distraction actually uh, communicating with uh, small children in the back seat actually show out to be 
safer, not less, uh, not not more risky. And again, the reason you're providing a safe cocoon uh, to get your kids to school, you're probably keeping extra space in front. You're not um, demonstrating these assertive or aggressive behaviors. So the distractions are a reality. A lot of our students now, 16 to 25-year-olds, are pretty much born with a cell phone in their hand. Mm. And, they're, and that's their entertainment unit. They're taking their entertainment unit into the car with them. Yeah. That's, mm. that's kind of crazy. So we have to learn how to deal with the technology and understand that you're a road user in a public system, and we have to share the space. And just being in your little cocoon of your screen or your car doesn't um, um, protect you from being angry at someone else in a cocoon of a car. It's not a video game. You can't uh, shake your fist and drive away because someone will follow you. You don't want to be leading people uh, to the parking lot or to your home. Those are, those are actual consequences now of people being so assertive or aggressive that you have to start thinking of safety once you get out of the car. Mm. Angelo DeChico has been with us, General Manager of Young Drivers of Canada. Angelo, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Safe driving, everyone. Thank you. Uh, Let's bring in Dr. Steve Albrecht, trainer, speaker, author, consultant, and expertise in high-risk HR stress issues, stress management, former police officer with the San Diego Police Department. He is with us now. Hello, Steve. How are you today? Thanks for taking the time to join us. Yeah, happy to help you. Thanks. So uh, what is road rage? Is it bad manners or is it a result of congestion in uh, big metropolitan areas? Yeah, it's a combination of those factors. You can add in personal stress that people have. You can add in weather that that makes people irritated, you know, the hotter it is. More traffic, more construction on the highways, more construction on the roads. You know, your your previous caller said the exact same thing, which is distraction and then the sense of territoriality that people have. I do own the whole whole road. I can do whatever I want, get out of my way. Is that kind of thinking for some people? And when they do those things, they put other people at risk. Uh, is it getting worse or has it always been there? We're just now seeing more of it with uh, dash cams and such. I think it's both. I think it is getting worse and also just because of the, the speed and pace of life and the stressors of life. And a lot of people are just, you know, feel like they're under stress all the time going to work, coming back from work. And then, you know, the idea that with social media we can capture so many of these things and put it on, on uh, Facebook and whatnot fairly quickly. And that's a good thing from a law enforcement perspective, but it also points to the larger issue of how bad people's behavior is. Uh, what do you think, this person, this video that we've uh, we've got here in Hamilton that we're showing is, uh, you know, a guy comes up to the back of a car, the car takes off, the guy's out of the car, literally walking, shaking his fist after the car in the middle of a, a busy intersection. Uh, what do you think this guy thinks about when he looks back at his actions? Sometimes I, I've talked to people involved in these situations. They feel a lot of remorse and guilt for what they've done. Uh, they're not much on the maturity scale. They don't feel that. But for people, sometimes they, they look at their behavior, especially on screen, on camera, and say, geez, I didn't realize they did that. And, and, you know, oftentimes we talk about that's the little brain thinking, not the big brain. The little brain thinking is primitive, and it's about survival and about, about you know, anger and violence. The big brain says, don't do things that get me arrested or embarrass me in front of my kids or embarrass me on, on national television. But sometimes people don't have that insight while they're going through that experience on the side of the road. How can we avoid this? Let's take it from both perspectives. Uh, firstly, the road rager. Uh, you know, someone's cut you off, someone's done something, you're pissed off. What do you do? I think, you know, you go back to stress management 101, which is control your breathing. Slow things down in your breathing. We get high pulse rate, high blood pressure. We get that feeling of, of anger which wells up inside of us. We can really counter that pretty quickly by just slowing down our breathing. Um, the, from the other side of the perspective, on the driver's side, you know, you, you've got to really pay attention to your driving. You've got to be a careful driver and, and try to make a gesture to the other person like, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Don't, don't engage in the mad dogging, you know, eyeballing this person, flipping them off, which just encourages more of the same. Should you make contact at all? Some say, you know, just ignore and keep looking forward. Sometimes I guess that agitates the road rager even more. Uh, is it best just to say, hey, I'm sorry, Show, you know, give the shrug, whatever. Sorry, pal. I think so. Yeah, I think that helps. But if not, also don't get involved in situations where, you you know, you're going back and forth and you're, you're weaving in and out or you're trying to make eye contact and, and getting distracted by your own driving. I, I think a lot of times these guys that do these things, and it is a male-based situation, you know, violence is a, is a male issue, is 
is to let let those guys go forward, let them let them get a, in head view and go down the road. And, you know, I see people trying to catch up to them and you know do things out the window, and that just escalates it. Uh, do we have heard reports of this in the past? Do you do you actually think it is getting any worse? And 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 talk a little bit about having cameras and people with dash cameras in cars, and if that's a, d- a deterrent at all. I think it is a deterrent. I think you can capture things for law enforcement to look at, especially if it really gets out of hand to a to a crime case. But I do to go back to your point. I, I do think it's getting worse for a couple of reasons. One is there are just so many more cars on the road. We have a lot more drivers of various ages come from other countries or may not have the same driving skills we have a lot more people in a lot smaller space it seems like you know with our infrastructure issues especially in the united states the roads are always being worked on there's always construction there's always lane change issues and things that are people just feel a lot of stress and then you look at the most common cities especially in the states for traffic los angeles you know houston dallas um, new york dc things like that there's a lot of road rage in those cities as well so I, i don't think it's it's a new phenomenon. Everybody understands it, but I think it's certainly getting worse. Is it just as bad a distraction, uh, anger, as, say, a, a device or texting or something like that? Well, I, I think that when people get stuck on their devices, um, they lose focus on driving. People think they can multitask, and most, most folks, including me, cannot multitask very well. I think you know, if you really pay attention to your driving, your lane position, using your signals, not tailgating, not speeding, not cutting people off, and then giving some patience with other people in the way that they drive, maybe not so well, you know, having a little patience with each other would go a long way. Would you recommend dash cams for everyone? Are you seeing it a lot in the U.S.? Uh, I, I do see that. I, you know, I, one thing I notice a lot is uh, that motorcycle riders tend to use GoPros and things like that on their helmets to capture people that are doing stuff in front of them. That could be useful. You know, I think the issue is is not trying to capture things on your phone as much as call the police. If you have the you know, the cell phone with you, call the state trooper, call the highway patrol, call the police, and report aggressive driving. And that's what they, they have undercover cops, they have helicopters, they have patrol cars, motorcycle cops looking for aggressive drivers, not necessarily speeders, but people that are putting other people at risk with their driving. Dr. Steve Albrecht has been with us, trainer, speaker, author, consultant, uh, stress management expert in high-risk HR issues, former police officer with the San Diego Police Department. Steve, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've all uh, tried to decode what has been going on in the United States. Well, pretty much since uh, President Trump, uh, his inauguration way back when. Uh, And, of course, we all know the scenario with uh, Charlottesville and the tragedy that happened there over the weekend. Uh, Let's bring in Tim Harper, freelance writer and columnist with the Toronto Star. He is with us now. Hello, Tim. How are you today? Great to have you aboard. Thanks, Scott. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, we all know uh, about Trump's reaction to uh, uh, what happened in Virginia, you know, initially coming out on the Saturday saying both sides. And then after the, you know, uh, the, the poop hit the fan, so to speak, on Monday, he came out with a very prepared statement, seeming to cover all the bases, denouncing all the proper groups, doing everything he was supposed to be doing as a president. And then he gets in front of reporters. And boy, I think that's his real Achilles heel here. Uh, they start pecking at him, and he falls apart just like a loose shirt. And uh, the next thing you know, he goes back to reverting to his both sides analogy that he was uh, initially. Uh, that being said, um, some have said this is a tipping point. Is it different this time, Tim? Well, you know, that's a good question, Scott, because uh, since his inauguration, uh, well, right back to the campaign, there seemed to be tipping point after tipping point, and he's never tipped. This one, though, this does um, feel different. i got to tell you, I watched that scrum with reporters live, and I have never seen a politician, let alone President of the United States, get become so unhinged. Uh, he, he just lost it. Um, and um, it, was, it was chilling to watch, and I could not believe, actually, to be honest with you, what I was hearing. And I suspect... Um, most of the country, most of the continent, most of the world couldn't believe what they were hearing either. So um, when it comes to a a question so uh, fundamental about neo-Nazis and Klansmen uh, members uh, arriving in a town uh, in numbers that haven't been seen apparently for 40 years, condemning that should be the lowest hanging fruit that any politician uh, should be able to do. I, I, I mean, other than uh, the KKK and neo-Nazis, who would not condemn the KKK and neo-Nazis? Yet 
the president was able to, unable to do it. Um, it does feel like a tipping point, but um, uh, sad to say, I think really what it, he's done is just embolden these white supremacists, uh, and we're going to see more confrontations like this. Uh, but, you know, this man is not fit to be the, the president of the United States when he can't simply condemn racism and bigotry and evil in his own backyard. What What's left for the right? Where does this leave conservatism? Where does this leave the Republicans? Uh, you, you know, wherever they are in the world. I mean, how do they distance themselves from this? Well, I guess first, we, both here and in the United States, we have to differentiate between conservatives and the alt-right or conservatives uh, on the right and the extreme right. But, you know, what is notable this time about the reaction to the president is that members of his own party in Congress are finally taking him on. Uh, they've been uh, they've been really a gang of quislings uh, leading up to this. Uh, you're seeing uh, elected officials at all levels uh, of government in the United States taking on Trump uh, for the first time. Um, and you, you see his business council fleeing. Um, he finally disbanded it before they disbanded it themselves. Um, so the Republican Party, I mean, the oxygen for all um, politicians is, is the next election. And uh, I think when you get to the point where you've got the leader of your party, the president of the United States, endangering your re-election, this finally it focuses uh, um, members of Congress. And I think that's why you see... Uh, so many of them now speaking up uh, against the president because he is uh, gravely endangering their re-election chances. And I know that sounds cynical, but that's really what it gets, uh, what it takes to get politicians to actually take a stand on things when they um, they put their finger in the wind and realize, man, oh man, I've got to uh, push back on this or I'm going to be out of a job. It certainly seems that in fr- as soon as he gets in front of the press and they start challenging him in any way, he just goes back on his hind feet and, and loses it. I mean, you know, you even wonder, uh, well, just the looks on, on General Kelly standing next to him pretty much explained it all. But it, it just seems that the press, he, he just he, he cannot stand up to the press without without coming apart. Well, you know, I think the uh, the trigger for this was the criticism that he um, he got on the uh, the day of uh, this atrocity in Charlottesville when he talked about uh, intolerance on all sides uh, on all sides. He repeated it. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't like criticism. He's incredibly thin skinned. So they, you know, uh, Kelly got him uh, to stand in front of a teleprompter. And make a presidential statement, and uh, and why couldn't he just he, leave it there, Tim? Why couldn't because, he just go home? Because you see, you're right. Picking at him and picking at him. Keep in mind, this was supposed to be some announcement on uh, infrastructure. Infrastructure, yeah, right in New York. The first question is why did why did you wait so long before making the statement the yeah. day before? Well, you know that that set him off, and then and then he was uh, it was a way to the races. There's no way of reining him in. But it was uh, him responding to criticism because criticism uh, drives him nuts and he can't handle it. And instead of, you're right, just letting that statement stand and uh, saying, you know, I, I, you heard what I said yesterday, let's talk about infrastructure. He is incapable of doing that. And the other thing is, I think you and I both know, we heard what he actually thought. The canned statement, the presidential statement, the... Um, a highly principled statement the day before was written for him. Uh, he delivered it, no doubt, under duress, but that's not what he believed. What he believed was what we heard the next day. Uh, how do you trust this guy with the security codes? Uh, frankly, I don't. I wrote uh, you know, uh, a couple months ago about uh, the danger of him uh, tweeting the world into a, a nuclear uh, war with North Korea. Well, even yes, his re- his response to North Korea is a perfect example of that. Yeah, I, I, even the uh, even the North Koreans don't know how to react to this guy. I shouldn't be chuckling because it's it's scary. It's yeah. not funny, but um, his impetuous uh, nature, uh, the way he lashes out, uh, his anger issues, um, uh, I think should cause everybody uh, a, a great concern about. You know what he's going to say next. What he's going to tweet next, uh, and you know he's he's like the uh, 
proverbial guy uh, on the running uh, on the slippy sidewalk with uh, with scissors. Somebody's going to get hurt. Uh, it seems alt right uh, extreme uh, now. Uh, Trump's using the alt left. Uh, where's the middle gone? And is anybody going to defend the middle? Can anybody bring the left and the right back to the center? Well, you see, that's that is the problem. You know, when you don't have leadership trying to do that, you just galvanize both sides. I mean, when you have the head of the KKK uh, praising uh, the, the president, uh, pra- look, if the head of the KKK tweeted out about something I wrote or something you broadcast um, saying, hey, great job, way to go. Uh, I think we'd rephrase exactly what we. You wouldn't retweet. You wouldn't retweet that one, Tim. <laughs> oh, my God, I, I would have to think. My God, what did I just write? Uh, but uh, it doesn't work with him right now. I think the the danger, as I say, in the U.S. and and I, I fear here uh, is that you're going to see an emboldened white supremacist movement, thinking that you know they they've got permission from this guy. Uh, they're going to uh, they're going to do this again. Um, the alt-left is a, is a term that he, he just created. There are, without a doubt, um, anti-fascists who also come to these things armed for a fight. But there is no moral equivalency here. You saw, and, and the world saw, um, these guys walking down the streets uh, with torches and uh, uh, Heil Trump chants and uh, Nazi, Nazi slogans. Um, there, there is no moral equivalency here, but if you if you don't uh, denounce it for what it is, the evil that it is, um, they merely become emboldened, and, and uh, I think this is the the real tragedy of what the, uh, the president of the United States has done. Is I think he's just set the stage for more of these. Now, I don't know what he does if this continues because he's uh, he's played his hand. We know what he thinks. Hmm. Uh, is this a left-right issue, or, or is the left and right getting dragged into this by extremism? Uh, is it just a plain and simple racist issue? Well, you know what? Let's take a more optimistic take on it. You are seeing voices of reason uh, come to the fore, and I'm thinking of a lot of uh, mayors uh, and governors in the, in the United States, for example. The mayor of Charlottesville denouncing uh, uh, Trump after uh, his initial statements. I, I thought it was a, a tour de force. I saw the man interviewed three or four times, and uh, he pushed back. Now, you also have, uh, just going off the top of my head, you've got the mayor of Lexington, Kentucky, accelerating plans to take down um, Confederate statues. Right. Uh, Baltimore mm-hmm. uh, has announced it's doing the same thing. The, the, the optimistic take on this is the pushback against this movement uh, has um, energized uh, politicians uh, to take action in their own backyard, that, you know, this is long overdue. Uh, I mean, these statues were, um, uh, these statues, most of them were put up early uh, in, the, in the last century uh, as, a, as a bid to sort of rewrite uh, American history when it came to the Civil War and slavery. They, they so you don't, you don't think they there's any historic value to these at all? Well, you know, that's a, that's a tough one because, uh, you know, some of this has been playing out here in Canada when it comes to... Uh, um, you know, Edgerton Ryerson, for example, mm-hmm. and uh, my alma mater, and, and, and the question of uh, the cultural genocide of indigenous peoples here uh, with residential schools. It's not that cut and dried, but in this case, if these are becoming flashpoints for, um, uh, for racists and bigots, uh, yeah, I, I, in this case, I think it's cut and dried. I think they should all come down. They should all come down real fast. How uh, is is this is this killing the right? How will the right react to this? How do they separate? How do they, uh, you know, whether you're a Republican or a conservative, whether you're here or there, uh, this is certainly painting an ugly light for the right. How do they get past this? Well, you can see what's happening in this country. There's a lot of pressure on conservative politicians uh, to not engage with a, a an alt right uh, website in this country. Um, uh, to uh, to shun it, to um, uh, publicly rebuke it. Uh, I, I think um, smart politicians, both in the Conservative Party in Canada and the Republicans in the U.S., will uh, do all they can to distance themselves uh, from from this in the name of the right. As I said earlier, you know, there's a difference between being a Republican or a conservative and a member of the alt right. Um, so, I, one thing about you know. What we're talking about, what's going on now, is, is you know, 
it's helped me open, you know, sunshine being the great disinfectant. Um, it's hmm. chilling to see what happened in in that beautiful town of Virginia that I, I, I spent a weekend in when I lived in, in Washington. It's a beautiful place. It looked like an invasion of, of, of the town. Uh, I know there were only probably about 500 of them, but um, it still felt like this, this town was being invaded. Uh, I, I think um, right-thinking uh, uh, American and Canadian politicians on, on the right side of the spectrum uh, will will quite rightly push back against this, um, condemn it. Uh, the, the president can't do it, but um, it, it was certainly done in this country by members of the Conservative Party, who I believe pushed back sincerely and, and um, uh, condemned it sincerely, but also knowing if they didn't, uh, you know, we're at the point if, if silence or inaction, uh, you're part of the problem. I think all right-thinking people... Uh, have to come out and, and condemn what is going on and uh, and see it for what it is the the rise of evil and 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 it cannot be allowed to flourish. Uh, got about thirty seconds left. Where do you see this going, Tim? What, what's left for Trump in the short term here? Well, um, I, I I don't think he, look. Forget about impeachment. It's not going to happen. Certainly in the short term, um, but. His approval ratings are, are cratering. He, he is, he's covered himself in um, infamy. Um, I, I, he needs some kind of victory to turn things around, but he seems totally incapable of that. Um, it's hard to say how he comes back from this. Uh, this, this. This is a legacy moment for him, and it's certainly not the legacy that any president would want. So uh, watch the midterms and see what happens in the midterms and see what happens to the Republican Party. Tim Harper has been with us. You can read him in the Toronto Star. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Love talking to you, Scott. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Let's bring in Noor Al-Khadri, professor at the Telfer School of Management, University of Ottawa, and get his take on all of this. Noor, thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, you've known or you're aware of what's happened in the last several days. Where does this leave the right? How do they separate themselves from all of this? Um, good afternoon, uh, Scott. Uh, this is uh, becoming uh, mainly a clash. Uh, we used to talk about clash of civilizations before. Now uh, we're seeing the ultra-right uh, on uh, on the rise, and uh, the progressive forces have to uh, come out and start uh, addressing this and call a spade a spade. Uh, it is absolutely unfortunate uh, what we have seen uh, with the rise of, uh, of Trump that uh, uh, these types of uh, ultra-right-wing ideas uh, came, came in. Uh, we started to see them move a little by little, and more uh, more so, uh, we've seen uh, extra uh, notes coming towards Canada uh, when we've seen uh, Chris Alexander, for instance, uh, standing in, in Alberta, and people are asking him to, to look uh, in uh, regional tourism. Uh, those types of sentiments, uh, exist. Uh, they got uh, a lot of fertilizers over uh, the election of uh, of Trump, and this is just a, uh, a result. We need to see people from from the right, especially in Canada, mainly leaders of conservative parties, coming in denouncing that, um, disavowing or uh, and distancing themselves from from these things. Otherwise, um, uh, these movements are popular. And uh, if, if they if they stay in, uh, we're going to see lots of clashes, and uh, it could go to clashes in the street. Is this a tipping point for Trump? Do you think, considering um, everything else that's happened since he's been president? Trump is is unpredictable. Trump was elected on uh, on that rhetoric. Trump will never distance himself from these things until he gets pressure. And it is absolutely unfortunate that uh, he is not getting that, that pressure. He walked away from the Paris Agreement without uh, getting the, uh, the right pressure, just like small condemnations. Now we see, for instance, um, uh, lots of uh, um, alliances and uh, the politics of pragmatism uh, being played here in Canada with the Trump team and uh, and, and all around the world with the Trump team. Uh, so Trump is, uh, is in this. Uh, this is his base. Uh, he will not uh, aban- abandon his base unless there are um, consequences. And those consequences have to come from pressure from the outside and from the, in, uh, the inside. Till now, we have not seen 
major uh, um, Republican figures coming out and denouncing those, except for some mayors in uh, in, uh, in the United States. Um, Trump uh, will not will not distance himself uh, like following Trump over the last uh, two years. I wouldn't think he would distance himself from from these uh, from these things. Uh, the fact that he uh, and you know I, I don't think it's any surprise. Most people have probably formed their own opinion about the president at this point. Um, but the fact that he he said one thing on the Saturday, then came out on the Monday, and obviously read something that was completely written for him, touching all the bases that he needed to touch, saying all the things that he should have said, and then reacts to the exact opposite on Tuesday. Over and above the content of what he said, just the fact that you know that we almost have a Jekyll and Hyde thing going on here. How are how are Americans supposed to interpret that? Well, those uh, things are coming from uh, from his from his office when he reads these types of statements. Are like just uh, when you have a big disease and and, and you give you give the patient uh, some Advil or Tylenol, uh, you uh, are going to pass few hours and then uh, uh, people would, would see those like, well, those are good notes for coming from the president he should have said that and later on you'll see you'll get, you're back to the disease you're not uh, dealing with the root cause of the problem uh, I mean those the ultra right wing people are like bringing uh, race in the, and their their central organizing political principle is becoming on on race and and that's something that Trump has started. I wouldn't see this changing unless Trump uh, kind of uh, kind of uh, comes onto like political suicide. That's his base. That's his strength. Uh, that's where he's going to stay. And um, I wouldn't think he's going to commit political suicide. His central organizing political principle is going to stay on race. He started you know, this against people who of. Um, that come from you know, some Muslim nations. He, uh, he, he is uh, going against environmentalists. He's going against everything that is progressive. And uh, that's going to just push uh, all those ultra-right-wing uh, extremist uh, uh, ideas uh, forward. Changing the rhetoric on a, on a written uh, paper is not going to lead us anywhere uh, unless there is a change in the fundamentals and we don't see this happening. Noor El Qadri has been with us, professor at the Telfer School of Management, University of Ottawa. Noor, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Always. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. Let's talk about what has uh, been happening in uh, Barcelona. Uh, of course, uh, just horrific uh, story coming out of uh, Barcelona. Uh, a van has jumped the sidewalk in Barcelona's uh, entertainment district or tourist district, uh, Los Rambles district, plowing into tourists and residents. Uh, Spanish newspapers say the police are treating this like it is a terror attack. To talk more about all of this, John Thompson is with us, security consultant, strategic intelligence group, and is with us now. Hello, John. How are you today? Thanks for taking the time to join us. Thanks for inviting me, Scott. Uh, your thoughts when you first heard uh, this story breaking earlier on this afternoon? Well, the usual thing, it's sort of uh, the pause, because we're all getting twitchy, and then so every time a vehicle rams into pedestrians, you know, is it an accident? And you have to wait. And then when the police start to use the terrorism word, and you go, okay, you know, once more, and there's not much we can do to stop these attacks. Uh, what do we know at this point? Uh, it seems that they're uh, quite willing to say that it was a terrorist attack. Uh, we also had heard uh, reports of a hostage taking and such. What do we know here? Well, um, if you've ever been to Barcelona and you, you probably have gone up uh, Los Ramblas, it's a, a wide, wide boulevard, but you know, there's sort of a, a narrow strip on each side of the boulevard for vehicles. The center of the boulevard, you know, it's all covered over with trees and uh, kiosks and, and performers and people. I mean, it's, it's you know, the name means the ramble, and it, there's no more perfect place to do just that. So there, there's always, you know, hundreds or thousands of uh, locals and tourists and everybody else moving around on the area. And if a vehicle is driving up the center, that is a very deliberate act. 
Uh, so at this point, it looks like uh, there has been one person arrested in relation to this attack. It, it looks like uh, remains to be seen that if there's others. The so far, the police say the uh, the only eyewitness they've got said one driver uh, fleeing after striking down several people. Um, sometimes in these attacks, as if, for example, we've seen in London, there may be uh, three or four people in the vehicle, and then they leap out with knives and start attacking. Uh, people on the ground or, or race off elsewhere and, and start cutting people up. Um, also, in some cases, you know, they've got guns in the, the vehicle and start shooting, but this guy just seems to have run off. You know, the, the vehicle homicide aspect of it was his own uh, contribution and doesn't seem to have been ready to make the rest. The other point about the hostage taking and everything else, that's still not confirmed, and one of the... Uh, there's a, a a real information fog that settles in during an incident like this uh, because there's all sorts of people dialing in stuff and uh, dialing in their own impressions and uh, often they're quite wrong and of course the uh, uh, emergency dispatchers the the police uh, who are you know running a headquarters have to try and uh, sort out the, uh, uh, you know the false reports from the accurate ones and it's very difficult for a couple of hours has anybody taken uh, credit or claimed credit for this at this point? The usual pattern, if, if he's doing it on behalf of the, uh, the jihad, we have to wait a couple of days, uh, at least 24 hours anyway, before uh, uh, ISIS or uh, al-Qaeda claim the attacker as their own. It doesn't mean he's actually uh, you know, a full member of the organization or was working at their instructions. It just basically means, yeah, uh, this guy was, you know, inspired by our websites, and we'll we'll take credit for him. Uh, what do we know about the second van that we heard that was connected with this? Not much right now. I mean, the the, the information filter is still uh, being shaken loose. We're still trying to find out exactly what's going on. Same thing, uh, as I said, with the, the hostage-taking situation, if, if there is indeed one. So do we know at this point if uh, police and officials have this situation under control? When they think it's under control, they'll tell you. Um, and until then, you know, they are, they'll be asking people to stay off the streets, uh, get somewhere into a building. Uh, if they're tourists, to please phone home so that uh, friends and, and, and uh, neighbors and uh, relatives stop calling in to try and get any information when there may be none available. Uh, are, are, why, why Barcelona? Why now? Well, it's, you know, why anywhere? But, yeah. uh, um, part of the, the problem is, of course, is if, if this attack, say, was deliberately set up, uh, and, and ISIS is behind the planning of it, although, uh, for the conduct of this driver doesn't seem to be the case, uh, but they are trying to get all, collect, you know, all the major European cities. You know, so there's been attacks in Paris and in London and Berlin and uh, and Brussels and uh, they dearly know you know they, they know they'd love to get into Vienna and, and get into Rome certainly. Um, and, um, this city is uh, Barcelona is you know a, uh, Spain's major port. It's an, a vital tourist destination. It's a, uh, an incredible cultural hub uh, and a lot easier to attack than Madrid is. Uh, why do you know? Again, this happened uh, an hour or so ago. Why don't we have more information on this at this point? Well, it, it's it's the problem that things are sort of out of sync. Information or misinformation uh, flies around at the speed of light. Yeah. But at some point, you've got to get a police officer who you know drives up in his vehicle, gets out on his boots, and starts looking around, and then reports when he's got some facts. So trying to catch up with the generated information is always difficult. Uh, so obviously, like even as far as the amount of people, the number of people who've been injured or the number of people who've been killed in this attack, we still don't have verification of that at this point, do we? No. The, again, the definitive list has to come from the hospitals and from the emergency ward to say how many people have come in who are connected with this incident. Uh, right now, every ambulance that goes by may have three or four people. Um, maybe they've stopped calling uh, uh, the emergency services, but they'll still be calling the press. 
And so there'll be, uh, again, multiplied uh, reports of the, the number of ambulances going by and sometimes making things sound much worse than they are. So you have to wait and see what the hospitals report about who's come in uh, with an injury appropriate to this particular incident. How does this affect the rest of the city when something like this, when an incident like this happens? What does this do to the rest of Barcelona? Well, the, the first little twinge for everybody is, is a bit of anxiety. You know, you have to wonder, uh, is this the only attack? You know, is there something else? And, of course, the next twinge is, is why us? Um, and it's often the case, there's also anger. You know, who the hell are these SOB, blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah, to, to pick us? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the need to restrain that before we start making inappropriate responses to an attack. Then the other impulse, again, and you know, I think this will be especially strong in a place like Barcelona, is how do I help? Uh, so, uh, obviously, at this point, this situation does still seem fluid, correct? Yeah, and it will be fluid uh, until things really shake out in a couple of hours. And at this point, uh, again, uh, we're hearing that local Spanish media earlier reported that two armed men had entered a restaurant. We still don't know or have any confirmation, I guess, on that as well. Yeah, and and again, that's typical. If you remember when we had the attack on Parliament Hill, the the gunman was reported in several instances, and there was a false report that uh, he was in the Rito Center, and and everything had to be checked out. Resources had to be uh, applied to everything. Uh, with that uh, Black Lives Matter uh, protest in Dallas, I think in 2015, where uh, a sniper opened up and, and shot 16 people. Um, again, you, you had every bystander uh, hearing gunshots echoing off the buildings and calling in saying they were hearing shots. So, you know, it's the sound of the, the shots echoed all over the downtown core. It sounded like there was a whole mass assault going on with loads of gunmen. Hmm. Uh, we certainly all know what's happened uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia. How did, does this change that discussion in any way? I mean, it, America's in a very divisive state right now. How does this play into it? Well, um, one thing is definitive about the attack in Charlottesville is already shaken out, and that is that uh, you know the, the person who drove his vehicle into the demonstrators uh, has been arrested, and he was charged on Monday. Um, it's interesting, though, that he was charged with second-degree murder, not first-degree murder. I thought that as well, John. What is your take on that? How does that happen if, you know, did someone accidentally get killed because he drove his car into a crowd, or did he drive his car into the crowd with the intention of harming someone? Uh, I think, well, it's partly, uh, it means that the, the police say, okay, he had malice, and he did this. But they, they, they say that we don't think it was deliberate or pre-planned. So it, it may have been done on the spur of the moment. And, and, and that's the point. And after this, we really have to see what happens in the trial process. Uh, are you worried about copycat scenarios with what's happening in Barcelona? I mean, again, we've talked many times about how this is how, how this discussion has moved from planes flying into buildings to people just getting behind the wheel of a car and driving it into a crowd. Well, well, that's the problem. This technique has been developed and refined so that anybody can do it. It's out there for anybody to use. So, as we said, you don't have to be a jihadist or a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, to adopt it. Anybody can. And again, there's been a couple of episodes where someone who's mentally ill has just decided, you know, okay, now I'm going to be famous and hits the accelerator and aims onto the sidewalk. Uh, You know, you hate to get caught up in terms, but I'll ask anyway, since it's being floating around, is what happened in Charlottesville, is that domestic terrorism? Um, I'll... I've said for years that terrorism is, is an area with very, very gray boundaries. And this is you know, about as gray as those boundaries get. Uh, in fact, uh, the degree of hair splitting that might have to be done would, might have to be really left to lawyers in the court. Um, it's pretty darn close, you know. But it, it's it's very hard to say. I mean, again, uh, the police don't think he arrived uh, and did anything deliberately. That's the point. But you know, was that demonstrator behind the wheel of his car because of an ideology? Yes. You know, that check one, did he, did he use violence against someone else? 
yes, was intended to uh, uh, basically uh, uh, alarm them and terrify them. Cause, you know, the purpose of terror is terror. That's where we get into an issue because again, we're really not sure. There's grounds to believe that he was running, for, you know, driving from someone else who was threatening to turn his head into paste. I can't let you go, John, without asking you uh, with what's transpired in the United States and the way the president has reacted to it. Uh, your thoughts from a security perspective, uh, as, as President Trump was holding his press conference on Tuesday, contradicting what he had said uh, the previous Monday, you could see uh, General Kelly just kind of stone-faced looking at the ground. From a security perspective, what does this leave you feeling? All right, the big picture we've seen is coming for a long way. You know, we are heading into an intellectual climate like the late 60s. There's the rejection of sort of postmodernism of of the gestalt that grew up in the 60s and has been running things, and it's given us political correctness and deconstruction and all the rest of it. Uh, That's being attacked. Um, My own sympathies are with the people who attack it generally, but not... Specifically, um, this particular case, though, I mean, the Ku Klux Klan and the neo-Nazis in the United States uh, do not need a right-wing revival. Left to their own devices, these groups are just too fragmented. Too, uh, they, they don't have the chops to actually run a mass movement. And they don't represent uh, American conservatism. In fact, again, they're, they're quite the, the opposite of it in some respects. And I think that if you look at the history of the Klan and the Klu uh, and the neo Nazis, mostly if you leave them alone, they amount to nothing. They're, they break up into small factions. For example, there are 42 different uh, Klu Klux Klan organizations in the United States, 24 different neo Nazi organizations, all of them claiming to be the one true group. You know, this is not a mass movement. Uh, and I, I think it's a mistake to believe that this is what's uh, occurring. Uh, is uh, Donald Trump doing more to harm or uh, help that discussion? Well, he doesn't like uh, the neo-Nazis or the Ku Klux Klan, but everyone's expecting them to expecting him to uh, jump up and down and denounce them. But he's also trying to point out that you know it's too to tango, and that the, uh, if the Klan had been left to their own devices, they would have had a weekend in Charlottesville and you know waved their flags and paunched about and looked silly which is something they're really good at, uh, and then gone. But the counter-demonstrators felt compelled to come into town, uh, didn't feel obliged to stay on the other side of town, but came out deliberately seeking a face-to-face confrontation. You know, if, that if being you, said, that being said, and, and you know, I, I don't want to get too deep into this with you, John. But that being said, the two to tango. I mean, you could say it takes two to tango in World War II, and we defeated Nazism. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, is it right to, you know, uh, for him to label these two groups as being equal when one's responsible for killing, the other one's not? Oh, um, there are uh, murder attempts on the other side of things, too. Um, but the, I think that's the, the critical point about the neo-Nazis, is that Nazism is a coherent ideology lost its power in 1945. What you instead have are a bunch of cultural memes and symbols that really annoy us. And you have had, you know, with sort of the so-called Nazis who popped up in the last while, sort of, you know, weak, flawed people who pick these symbols up because they think it makes them look powerful. Are they really Nazis? No, they're not. They're, well, they're losers who are trying to act like they're strong. Good point. John Thompson has been with us, security consultant, strategic intelligence group. John, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.